But in order to do this, we need to relax a lot of regulations because there's so many stupid rules. Let me tell you about one. And then you better stop me because I could talk all day. <laughs> I can't. I could talk about this forever. It's so good. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Today's pod is part of the series leading up to the midterm elections called Candidate Conversations, where we chat with candidates from across the country whose races are deeply important and need our attention. Our guest today is Karen Bass, Congresswoman for California's 37th District, former California Assemblywoman, and current candidate for mayor of Los Angeles. A former community organizer, Karen was the founder of Community Coalition, a community-based social justice organization created to address substance abuse, poverty, and crime in South LA, which 30 years later is now considered one of the most impactful and respected nonprofit organizations in the city. Prior to being in Congress, Chairwoman Bass served the California State Assembly, where in 2008 she made history by becoming the first African-American woman in U.S. history to serve as Speaker of any state legislature. It was during that time that we also had the biggest economic crisis since the Great Depression. But under Bass's leadership, California thrived, and she ended up receiving the John F. Kennedy Profile and Courage Award for her work. Karen has now been a congresswoman since 2013 and has served on the Judiciary Committee, the House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee, and was a key player in getting the 2020 Equality Act passed, which provided explicit anti-discrimination protections for LGBTQIA people, founded the Bipartisan Congressional Caucus on Foster Youth, and served as the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus in 2019 and 2020. And now she's running for mayor of Los Angeles. And you might think, okay, I'm out. I don't live in Los Angeles, so why should I care? Here's why. Los Angeles is the second biggest city in the United States. California has the biggest population in the United States. So the things that happen here end up being the beta test for things that happen across the country. Legislation, laws and programs that start in big cities and states often end up rolling out to other places. Look at Texas's terrible abortion bans or the criminalization of women and doctors that is now being implemented in other red states. Look at what's happening with education in Florida. Other Republicans are looking at their regressive policies as a template for what is possible and what they can do federally if put back in charge. So the things that Karen Bass wants to implement in Los Angeles, if successful, will no doubt expand to other cities or states. And what happens in California is very often the bellwether for federal legislation. That's why Governor Gavin Newsom is being so proactive on the climate. As the saying goes, as goes California, so goes the nation. I'm also having her on because she's running against a wolf in sheep's clothing. The newest way Republicans are trying to undermine the electorate is to trick them into voting for someone who presents themselves as one thing, but is actually another. It's why vocal anti-choice Republicans are now scrubbing their websites of any anti-abortion rhetoric, and people like Glenn Youngkin could become governor of Virginia, presenting as some fleece-wearing moderate dad when he was really a far-right extremist billionaire who was anti-choice and anti-public school. Karen Bass is running against Rick Caruso, a lifelong Republican billionaire real estate mogul who switched his party affiliation to Democrat just three weeks before declaring his candidacy for L.A. mayor. He knows Los Angeles is a blue city, so he's pretending to be something he's not in a bid to trick Los Angeles into believing his values and positions align with theirs. And this is something that is happening right across the country. 
So this episode is worth listening to, not only because who runs LA is a blueprint for what could happen statewide or even nationally, but who wins this race is an indicator if voters can be tricked by GOP candidates looking to deceive them. So without further ado, and because let's be honest, that was a very long introduction, please welcome my guest, California Congresswoman, former state assembly member, and true Democratic candidate for mayor of Los Angeles, Karen Bass. Welcome, Karen. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for having me on, and thank you for what you do. Oh, thank you. We're both lovers of democracy. We got to put in the work, right? Yes, exactly. Well, We actually met very briefly at an Emily's List event, and at the time, I was very impressed with your poise and your call to leadership. You had such a clear vision of what you believe the job of a public servant was, Mm -hmm. and you spoke about how weird it is to kind of run for office because you always have to be talking about yourself, right? Which doesn't come naturally to you. And you said, I can only be comfortable going to the I if I know it's in service of the we. And I loved that. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Absolutely. And thank you for remembering that. Yeah, it struck me. When I was first running, I had a really hard time with it. And I had a couple of experienced elected officials sit me down and say, you know, you have to talk about yourself. But I was so unaccustomed to that because to me, it is always about the issues. It's always about the community. And it's never about myself. And so it took me a while, but what allowed me to make the adjustment was when I realized that I could talk about myself and the issues at the same time I could use it, then I felt comfortable. Yeah, no, it does make a difference. I find the same thing. I have no problem promoting politics girl the concept because I know it's a bigger idea, but just talking about myself feels deeply uncomfortable. I'm like, no, thanks. Let's not do that. Um, At the same event, you also told this great story about women in politics constantly being underestimated. And you said, I like being underestimated because then they don't see me coming. And it got this big laugh, which of course it should have because you delivered it perfectly. Um, But Talk to me a bit about that, because we are clearly at a time where women are being sidelined and we're being marginalized and we're being disrespected by our society as a whole. Our rights are being stripped away from us all around the country. So what do you have to say to women as a leader in in this time at this point in America? Well, it's just so important for us to step up and participate and get our voices heard, because one of the problems is, is that we elect people and then we don't hold them accountable and then we wind up in the in the mess that we're in. And, and so increasing our participation is critical. You know, when I was first elected to Congress, I don't know exactly what the ratio was, but it was very out of whack. And so we have elected so many more women in the, in the years that I have been there, but we are nowhere near parity. And you know what there, I think if, if in, the, in the world, we're like maybe 20, 25, so many other countries are doing so much better than us. And you know, the countries that are doing the best are several African countries where mm. it's actually required to have a certain number of women. Rwanda has the highest proportion of women legislators than any country in the world. Well, I love that. Much more respect for the matriarchy over in Africa too, I think, and the power of women in general. Now, 
You have been a powerful woman uh, for Los Angeles, both in Sacramento and Washington for more than 14 years, but I don't really see you as a career politician. You know, the kind of people that, (laughs) yeah, right? The kind of people that need term limits to rein them in, or you're like, okay, I think your time's done, like move along, right? Because you keep changing roles. You keep growing in your job. And I think you, I see you more as a career public servant. Thank you. Can you you talk to me about that? Well, absolutely, because let me just begin by saying, I never imagined myself running for office, especially in the the time period when I was growing up, we kind of shunned that. We kind of looked at people who were in office as, you know, maybe they were too establishment per se. But after I I built a community organization, I was um, the executive director of an organization in South Central called Community Coalition. I was there for 14 years and my goal was to build it, recruit the leaders, train them and leave, pass that baton. And so what I realized is that I could play another role on the same issues and be effective. And so that's why I ran for state office. But I didn't run for office. The first time I ran for office, I was in my 50s. So I had done many things before. I had worked in healthcare. Uh, I had you know, worked in the community. And so being in office to me is just another way of addressing the issues that I was addressing in the community. I'm still working on the same issues trying to deal with criminal justice reform and addressing mass incarceration, trying to deal with the child welfare system because that's the feeder system to the criminal justice system and it's the feeder system to homelessness. And so trying to address some of the structural problems that lead to poverty, that lead to crime, that lead to the social and economic conditions is what I've been focusing on for the last four decades. Yeah, because it really comes down to the root problems, not just solving where we are now, but like, how did we get here and how do we stop arriving here? And that's what led to me saying, you know what, as much as you love being in Congress because you can work on domestic and international issues, and I love foreign policy, but I felt like I could no longer stay in Congress and I needed to come home because I really feel that we're in the fight for the soul of our city and we could go in two very different directions. And the two of us represent very different ideologies, very different values. And I kind of feel like I'm in this movie and I'm getting ready to watch this really bad movie over and over again. And the movie I'm referring to is when we had a crisis in the 80s, crack, the Crips, the Bloods, a thousand homicides, people were so demoralized. And then the problem is that elected officials, policymakers, all they did was pass laws to get rid of people to throw people in prison and they wouldn't address the root causes. And I feel like we're on the verge of doing the exact same thing again, just addressing what's in front of us, which are 40,000 people on the street. And some people are like, you know what? I taxed myself twice, the problem got worse. Can you just get rid of these people? And not understanding why the problem got worse, we absolutely need to get people off the street. It's outrageous to me that we've allowed this to happen where you see people living on the streets all over the place. I remember in the 80s, we didn't even have the word homelessness. That wasn't even in our vocabulary. And it began in the late 80s. And so um, I think now it has reached crisis proportion and we have to make a decision to address the problem. That's why I decided to walk away. I could have continued in Congress, walk away, gamble everything because that's what I think is at stake. 
I think that's exactly right. And I think we can't just continue to brush everything under the rug and say, look, the house is beautiful, right? Like that's not what's happening. We can't just brush it away and say, no more homelessness, all gone, right? We It's just going to come back all over again, which kind of brings us back to my original point, which is that the race that you're running isn't just about Los Angeles. It's about right. the issues of our time. Homelessness right. is not just in LA, right? But what happens in in cities like LA or populous states like California often end up dictating what happens or can be implemented across the nation. Exactly. Programs that start here, if we reimagine something, if we say we're not going to brush it under the carpet, we're going to reimagine a new way to do this. You start a project here in Los Angeles and then move on to state legislation and honestly national legislation. So let's go through your plans for the city. I'm going to hit some of your key issues so that everybody listening knows what you're prioritizing, but also so they can see that if you're successful with these programs, they could find their way to their cities and even to federal legislation. So feel free to jump in whenever you want. Um, And I'm going to say to anybody listening that I have never seen a candidate website like Karen Bass's. I mean, you you want to see detailed plans? I'm telling you, this freaking website, I I was sitting there, I was like, are you kidding me? It's thought out policy. Every single issue is broken down into easily understandable ideas in common speak. No generalizations or kind of pandering big concept ideas like when politicians say, we're going to solve the city's drug problem. And you're like, okay, how, you know, and like your entire website is the how, right? Leaders across the country could learn a hell of a lot just going through your proposals. And because it's so detailed, I can only graze the surface of what you have planned, but suffice it to say, you are ready to hit the ground running as mayor. So thank you so much for that. I know that our policy director, Joey Freeman, will be so happy to hear you say that. (laughs) It's a nerd. I'm a nerd, but I'm telling you, if people look at that website, they'll go, oh, I see how she's planning to do this. She's not just saying words. She really has a plan for this. Let's talk about these issues. Okay, homelessness. As you said, LA's homelessness crisis has evolved into a full-blown emergency. 40,000 people sleep without a roof over their head in the city every night. That is more than any other city in the country. Nearly four unhoused people die every day here. But homelessness isn't just a crisis for the unhoused. It's also an increasing crisis for every neighborhood in the city. It's a public health emergency. It's a public safety emergency. It's an economic emergency. But it's also a humanitarian crisis that requires a big response. Let me just tell you, because it it is a reflection of my values as to how those policies were put together. We involved people who were directly involved in the issue. So there's a lot of people in our city who are doing incredible work getting people housed and off the streets. The problem is, is that they don't have the resources to do it to the gargantuan scale that is needed. So we bring people to the table. If we're talking about transportation, we bring people to the table to help us put those policy papers together. They're not done in an, in an ivory tower. And so in homelessness, we have to get people off the streets immediately on day one. And then on day one, we have to get them services, depending on why they are unhoused. If it's somebody who is unhoused but is working full time, they don't necessarily need services. They need a roof over their head so that they don't have to buy a gym membership so they can have proper hygiene and then go to work. But if you're a former foster youth or if you're a veteran or maybe you're suffering from a chronic illness like substance abuse or mental health, you need services on day one as well. And then there needs to be a joining of the city and the county. We can't point fingers at each other. We have to be joined together. So off the street, 
temporary housing, but temporary. The problem is for too long, we say temporary and it just stays as temporary. We have to get people into permanent supportive housing and then eventually get people even out of that and mainstreamed back into the regular market. But we have to make sure that people have employment. And so one of the things that I want to do, we already are doing, but I want to really scale up, and that is outreach to get people off the street by training people who were formerly unhoused, because they're going to be the best ones to go and say, look, brother or sister, I was there. I worked my way off of it. You can get off the street. And it's the same thing with addiction. I did this 32 years ago at Community Coalition. The majority of my staff were people in recovery. They had been homeless. They had been addicted. And when they come out of their addiction, they become zealots. They are the most committed people to getting people off drugs so that they don't go through the same experiences that they did. But in order to do this, we need to relax a lot of regulations because there's so many stupid rules. Let me tell you about one. And then you better stop me because I could talk all day. <laughs> I can't. I could talk about this forever. It's so good. One rule is if you want a housing voucher, you have to present an ID. Well, I've been in a tent for five years. I don't have an ID. Well, you know what? I'll help you get an ID. Great. Where's it going to be mailed to? Why don't you put me in a house? Then I'll have an address. Then you can get my ID. It's those kind of thinking because the thinking is not like it's an emergency. If you imagine a hurricane or an earthquake, that's the mentality we have to have. I think your point that for too many years, the government action on homelessness has been way too compartmentalized and finger pointing and sort of federal, state, county, city governments all kind of doing their own thing and not working together in cohesion. That's a real problem. And then you you send police out to knock down homeless encampments instead of maybe funding teams or having people who have been homeless or have been in that position to go out and do outreach. Because I believe that the statistics say that when unsheltered individuals understand that there is a safe, clean place to go and services that they need, they don't act, they don't want to live on the streets. Right. When outreach is done right, most people don't refuse. And the ones that do refuse might just need more care to figure right. out their way back into the system where they feel confident in it. Exactly. And some people who are profoundly mentally ill, and all of us have seen that, they might not know. It's like you go up and talk to somebody. If they're having a psychotic episode, they could be talking to 16 imaginary people. And here you are. So some people might need extra care. But the problem now is, is that people have just gotten so demoralized. There is a segment of our population that just doesn't care, that just says, forget it. So it's my job to inspire those folks that there is hope. We can deal with this. Please go vote. Don't just say, I gave up, I don't even want to deal with it anymore. Because as long as we have that kind of attitude, it's just going to continue to get worse and worse. Yeah, and as long as we keep doing it the old way, it's going to continue to stay the same. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so let's do crime and public safety. It's kind of connected sure. to homelessness, right? Absolutely. You believe it's the mayor's job to keep people of their community safe. That's part of the mayor's Number job. Number one. But we need to move beyond our previous... I would say, failed approaches to yes. fighting crime, right? Yes. So how do you see reimagining fighting crime in our city? Well, you know, there are some neighborhoods, as I've gone throughout the city, there are some neighborhoods that want to see a more visible presence from police. There are some neighborhoods that that's the last thing they want to see. We have to address both. So for those neighborhoods that want to see an increased police presence, 
let's get the officers from behind the desk, get them on the street because we can do that quicker and they, we can hire civilians. We do need to replace police officers that have left. What I do not believe in is a massive expansion of the police. As long as we have the attitude that the way you are safe is by having more and more police officers, we're never gonna be safe, number one, because the police department can't even recruit enough people to fill a class. The maximum amount they can take is 40. They can't get past 20. I have always believed, and the reason I started Community Coalition in 1990, 32 years ago, is that we need a comprehensive approach. And we spent our first few years at Community Coalition pioneering certain strategies to prevent crime. Many of those strategies have been studied, researched, perfected, and replicated. But once again, we don't provide enough resources consistently. So I want to massively expand that. And President Biden has proposed billions of dollars for community safety or community violence prevention programs. I want to go after that. I've learned that uh, several years ago, I learned that L.A. leaves millions of dollars on the table of federal funding, doesn't even apply. And so you better believe I'm going to have full-time staff who do nothing but look for money. So I don't view everything as the pie of the city budget. I view that this is the United States. We have all the money we need here, but you got to go get it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that probably goes back to your social work background, you know, like you have to look for the grants, you have to look for right. what's out there and you have to take care of your people. And I think you're you're saying we, we prevent violence and crime in the same way that we prevent homelessness by addressing the root cause. In this case, it would be poverty, substance abuse, lack of access to supportive services. Well, you know, and, one reason why there there has been an increase in crime is because during the pandemic, like everything else, those programs were shut down. And they haven't fully come back. And so I want to really massively expand them. Now, in addition to that, I want to start an office of community safety that is not connected to law enforcement. Because frankly, what we have done as a society is we have divested from a lot of basic programs, health, you know, after school programs, social programs. And then when all these problems occur, we expect the police to solve all these problems. I don't think you go into the academy to deal with mental illness. You go into the academy to fight crime. But what right. society does is strips programs, and then when problems develop, we dump them all on the police. I don't. It's certainly not fair to neighborhoods, and it's it's also not fair to the police. So I want to have an office of community safety that focuses on non-law enforcement community strategies for safety. Well, you've made a big commitment to police reform. I mean, obviously, yes. Los Angeles has a complicated relationship with policing. There's a lot of people who don't trust the police, and that's not just our marginalized communities. That's the majority of communities right now watching what's happening. Um, and obviously, something needs to change in that. Um, now, you and your opponent both plan to put officers on the street, more officers on the street, but you have uh, way different ways of going about it. Right. What is your plan um, for the police? Because you're talking about having different systems. and Well, I did. Uh, um, I appreciate you um, mentioning this. Um, I did lead the effort in Congress on police reform, with the George yes. Floyd Justice and Policing Act. You did. We passed it twice out of the House. Couldn't get the Senate to budge. So Senator Cory Booker and I went to the White House and said, would you please take our bill and do as much of it as you can as the president. And so the president did do that. And, and he signed an executive order based on 
our bill. The fundamentals of police reform are two things, transparency and accountability. How about this? We have 18,000 police departments in the country and we have 18,000 methods of policing. There's no national standards, there's no accreditation. And could you imagine going to a doctor that has no standards? <laughs> no uniform training, no accreditation. Law enforcement is the only profession that could take away your freedom and your life. And so my goal with the Los Angeles Police Department would be accountability and transparency, holding officers accountable. And we have several, several parts of our system that are frankly broken when it comes to both of those issues. Yeah, I think you've spent most of your adult life working on police reform. So I can yes. only imagine you would continue that when you're elected mayor. Before we slide into your plans for the business community, let's take a moment to thank the businesses that made this conversation possible. And we'll be right back after this with mayoral candidate, Karen Bass. Today's podcast is brought to you by my favorite daily supplement, Athletic Greens. I was so excited this week because one of my dear friends, Colin, sent me a picture of Athletic Greens on his kitchen counter and said, I finally broke down and used your code. The thing is, Colin knows me really well. He knows that I'm telling the truth about this product, but it took him six months to finally bite the bullet and think, yeah, I guess I could feel better. I could get better sleep. I'd like to have a healthier gut. He'd be the first one to admit that like most people in the world, we all think we're doing just fine. We don't need any help. We don't need any supplements. We don't need to change how we eat. It's good, it's good. But if we're honest with ourselves, adding a small micro habit to give your body high quality ingredients to make yourself feel better every day is actually one of the smartest things you could be doing. It's not about being weak. It's about being strong and choosing to be stronger. Now my friend's an athlete, so I'm sure he appreciates that Athletic Greens is recommended by professional athletes and leading health experts and has over 7,000 five-star reviews. But as my friend, I'm just gonna be grateful that he's getting 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help start his day off right. I just know he's gonna end up feeling better. So join my friend Colin and reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills, just to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you one free year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash politicsgirl. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash politicsgirl to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate in daily nutritional insurance. Why does it always seem like when the kids go back to school after the summer ends, it's going to be easier? It's not easier. Now it seems like there's tons more to do, more things on our plate, more grocery shopping, more lunches being made, more driving, more dirty dishes, more homework, after school programs. Busy season is back in full force. But if you're anything like me, you don't exactly have all the time in the world to spend on meal prep. So let Splendid Spoon do it for you. If you've listened to me talk about Splendid Spoon before, I originally wasn't sure if we should take them on as a sponsor because I like to be honest about my products. And this is a plant-based meal delivery system and our family wasn't vegetarian, but they had so many options. And the ideas of having it delivered right to my door where I didn't have to actually prepare it, but just heat it up or drink it was highly appealing. They have over 50 ready-to-eat meals that can be delivered right to your house on repeat. Everything from breakfast smoothies to lunch bowls to noodle dinners and juices. Soups in between if you want them. You can easily customize your meal to fit your schedule and your diet. 
The plan is 100% plant-based, gluten and GMO-free, and it has plenty of vegetables and legumes and healthy fats and whole grains and spices from all around the world. If you're like me and you want to eat healthier, but you don't want to have to figure out how to do it, this is a pretty good way to go. So fuel up for your busy days with Splendid Spoon. Get started today and get $120 off your first three boxes at splendidspoon.com slash politicsgirl. That's $120 off at splendidspoon.com slash politicsgirl. You know, ultimately, we have to re-envision public safety. In this, yes. Right? It's right. just, it's essential. And, you know, racial profiling, excessive force, deadly shootings, that kind of thing, it just has to stop because it undermines the integrity and the public trust in police. And there are a lot of wonderful police officers out there, like you said, who didn't get into it to get into a fight on the street with someone having a mental breakdown. Exactly. But maybe Los Angeles, just like many cities in America, hasn't made the necessary investments right. to secure a strong enough social fabric that people's basic needs are being met. So I think we could kind of agree right across America, that seems to be the thing, that we need more investment in our communities, that we need to reduce our reliance on police officers and address the societal issues like mental illness, addiction, homelessness, poverty as individual rather than some blanket problems we can just throw police at. And as you said, we can't just arrest our way out of problems, right? But if people can put food on their tables and send their kids to good schools and pay their rent, they're far less likely to commit crime. And once we're talking about crime, we've already lost. We're already in the wrong place, right? Music to my ears. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just tell you that uh, legislation that I'm working on right now in my remaining uh, months in the House is to help people who have been incarcerated. Because when we went through our period of mass incarceration that we're not fully out of right now, but at least, at least people are beginning to have second thoughts. We, politicians did this, and, and I can talk about politicians because I am one. Every politician wanted to say, I'm tough on crime. I want to have a bill so that when I send my mail to get reelected, I could say, I did this. So people pass so many laws to punish folks that they not only pass laws to keep them in jail and to spread a net so wide that a lot of people got captured, then they pass laws to continue punishing them when they get out. And you wonder why somebody goes back into crime if you don't allow them to get a driver's license, if you don't allow them to work, if you don't allow them to rent housing, then, you know, when we started downsizing our prison population, there's a percentage of people in those tents that we put there because of policies that punish them for the rest of their life. So first of all, we need to reverse some of those policies, and I'm happy to mention a couple, and we need to provide now, we have to create a whole new layer of social support to to help people get reintegrated because of the damage that we did. People don't realize when you incarcerate somebody, you're not just incarcerating that individual, you're impacting that entire family. And 50% of children who have a parent incarcerated, become incarcerated themselves. So if you want to stop it, you have to, you have to, have to, have to stop just locking everybody up. And you know what happens in poor communities. People can't afford legal defense. And so they just plea and they wind up going to prison and uh, and that whole cycle. And then, of course, the people who are incarcerated are concentrated in certain zip codes. And you're creating actually some of the, the... Uh, get tough on crime problem policies contribute to crime. 
And I think ultimately, even people that are like, I don't know a lot of people who are incarcerated or I don't know people that, um, you know, are in these positions. Ultimately, everyone would benefit from having alternate response systems, including Mm -hmm. social workers and EMTs and trained mental health professionals who can manage different kinds of emergencies more targeted than the police can, right? So then the police are freed up to deal with what they should be dealing with, which is more serious crime. And it's essentially the argument behind the original defund the police concept, which was an impossible slogan to get behind and only added fuel to the fire um, for people that don't want to reform the system. Um, But what we want is for the police to have the support they need to do the job they were hired to do, including What you mentioned before, which I think is a brilliant idea, and I want to highlight it for people, is hiring civilians to do Mm -hmm. police desk work so the police can get out from behind the desk and actually be out in the communities. And that makes a lot of sense to me because not only does it make jobs for civilians, it frees up the police to do the jobs that they would want to do. And then we expand access to correctly trained people that would be dispatched dependent on the issue. Because I know that personally, there's a man that lives near us and he definitely does not need me to call 911 when he's having an episode, but I wish there was like, you know, a 711 and then they would send out Mm -hmm. mental health experts. And that way I'm not going to accidentally get him killed, but also he gets the help he needs. Yes. And you know what? Thank you for mentioning that because I was looking at officer involved deaths after George Floyd. I was looking at about a hundred of them and I would say 30 to 40% were mental health related. I mean, just the act of an officer coming in with the uniform and a gun to somebody who is in the middle of a psychotic episode triggers that person. And the officer, it puts the officer in a horrible position. They're not trained for that. And then the individual looks or acts violent, and then the person winds up being killed. I mean, it happens over and over again. And it's so sad in our society that we have decided to deal with mental illness. We have plenty of money to incarcerate people who are mentally ill, but we won't spend the money to take care of them. Isn't that crazy? It's a reimagining. It's exactly. a reimagining. And maybe that's maybe that's a little bit what happens when you only have 10 to 20% of your leaders as women. Maybe that's a little bit of what happens. You have to reimagine it. We have to think about it differently. You know, we have to close the fridge with our foot and make dinner at the same time. You know, we can do more than one thing. And I, I think totally that we think, that. yeah, we think a little less compartmentalized. Maybe it's just a different way of thinking. Now, I can't. Uh, talk to you about your policies without saying business. Obviously, business is big in LA. You're running against a businessman. Um, It's big across the country. The economy is a big deal across the country. And it's often what classic old school, non-racist, non-fascist conservatives are always hitting Democrats on, right? Like this, you know, it's the economy stupid stuff, right? But you've been really clear that you want to attract, retain, support businesses and job opportunities in Los Angeles. But like, no duh, of course you do, right? But you've pointed out that it's small business businesses that account for nearly half the jobs in the city. And a lot of them were damaged during the pandemic. And you see the recovery of these jobs as essential and your experience in the state assembly during the great recession as kind of the blueprint to make this happen. Like you've done it once and you can do it again. Absolutely. And you know, um, really the core issue in our city is income inequality. The difference between those that have and those that have not. Well, how do you solve that? There's really only three types of jobs. You either work for the public sector, the private sector, or you're self-employed. So if you're interested in dealing with poverty, you have to be committed to business. 
public sector and private sector. And so it's in everyone's interest for the business community to thrive. But I want to be very aggressive about that. I want to use things like our climate change goals to help business because you need small businesses. If you say you're going to green buildings, well, how does that work get done? Who does it? So let's go to the communities that have the most economic need, help them start businesses, provide them the technical support that they need, and then hire the people in those neighborhoods because they need the jobs the most and make sure the wages are decent. We have to lift everybody up. And so to me, it's a false dichotomy to say, well, you know, I care about poverty, but I don't care about business. Well, how are you supposed to get people out of poverty if they don't have a job? any jobs. I will tell you that one thing that's a little frustrating to me, though, is that um, d- during the pandemic, I chaired the Congressional Black Caucus, and we brought together the Black, Latino, Asian, and Native American caucuses. We all banded together, and we fought for and won hundreds of millions of dollars for small businesses in, in uh, uh, our communities, in underserved communities. But too many people tell me they weren't able to access the resources. That's why job on day one to me is to help those businesses that are struggling because of COVID and looking for the money. It, the money is not necessarily spent, but I want to provide aggressive technical assistance to those businesses that didn't get the money that we specifically fought for and sent to the areas. A lot of times people don't know how to fill out the applications, you know, whatever. Yeah. Well, that's why your website is so amazing because one of the things it says in the business section is you shouldn't have to hire a lobbying group to get basic civil, like city services. You know, it shouldn't be this unnecessarily hard to run a business or start a business or begin a business. You know, you have all of these ideas about like when you first start a business, you won't pay taxes for a certain amount of time when you have these kind of things so that it helps businesses begin. You said in the first 180 days of becoming mayor, you want to have a full scale review of regulations and make sure you're cutting the ones that are the most burdensome to the business community. And and let me tell you that one thing that I I think people don't realize about policy is that you pass policy upon policy upon policy and nobody goes back and reviews regulations that might have been passed decades ago that today no longer make sense. I remember when I was uh, first starting out in the state legislature and I was going to take on the child welfare system and I started doing all these town halls trying to see what laws we needed. And a social worker came to the meeting and she came with like, three stacks of notebooks and she plopped them down on a table in front of me. And she said, these are all the laws. (laughs) And I was like horrified because basically laws are passed, but unless a specific sunset is put in place, there's nothing to roll the laws back. So when you say reviewing regulations, that's what I'm talking about. There can be regulations that are critically outdated but there's no mechanism in place to get rid of them. <laughs> and so I want to do that. That's that's what I mean. I'm not talking about irresponsible deregulation like Republicans do. You know, they deregulate because businesses don't want to be transparent or held accountable. We need regulations that keep us safe and protect us, but old, outdated, crazy regulations. Can I tell you one? Yes, um, please. This is one that is crippling us in substance abuse and mental health. 50 years ago, a regulation was passed that said you can't have more than 16 people in a facility. So Supervisor Hilda Solis wants to address mental health, right? So on the campus of Old County General, she had to build three separate buildings 
to help mental health, you know, folks with mental illness. Three separate buildings. Now, the reason why that regulation was passed 50 years ago was because we were trying to get rid of the institutions, right? Well, we got rid of the institutions except for the jails. We got rid of the institutions and people wound up on the street. So that's kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's and, incredibly crazy. And now that we have an open air asylum, you know, we need to rethink some of these things. Yes, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> the amount of government regulations that everyone knows are there. You've, if you've ever tried to get anything done, you know, you think, why? Why is it like this? And I love the idea that we could have leadership being like, yeah, why is it like this? Maybe we should uh, rethink this. So let's pivot. We got to talk about your opponent, Rick Caruso, right. right? Who I mentioned in the introduction is a registered Democrat now, but only switched his party affiliation three weeks before registering to run for mayor. Now, Fox News recently did a segment where an anchor was weighing in on the Los Angeles mayoral race. And she said, Rick Caruso is the GOP candidate in L.A. And he, and he is. And I was like, oh my gosh, talk about a slip up, right? And then everyone else on social media was underneath saying, I thought he was a Democrat. Isn't he running as a Democrat? And then somebody else said, yeah, he's running as a Democrat, but he's a Republican. Clearly, even Fox News knows he's a Republican, right? So you spoke to this recently in your recent debate, and I thought you were very polite because he was saying the Democratic Party wasn't accepting him. And you said, you know what? He's right. His feelings are completely valid, but it's clear that the Democratic voters' feelings are valid as well, that he's not being accepted as a Democrat because he just chose to be a Democrat because he's running in a blue city and he understands that he can't win if he's, if he's himself. So he's put on the clothes of a Democrat, but that doesn't make him a Democrat. And so I think we should speak to that. You know, I think it's important to hammer home in today's political environment the people that say one thing and are another or who promise to do things one way and then govern another. We can't take that kind of chance in today's environment. There are too many of our basic human rights on the line. Democracy itself is on the line. Personally, I think that someone should be prepared to do the job. Experience is essential. You clearly have it. But at the very least, we need to be able to trust the candidate we're voting for and the values that they're going to be working with when they are leading. And that really concerns me with your opponent. So well said. Two critical words, trust and values. Absolutely. So Rick, for 36 years, was a Republican. In 2011, when he was thinking about running for mayor, he became independent. In 2016, he went back to being a Republican so he could co-chair John Kasich's presidential campaign. John Kasich, who was anti-abortion, by the way. When he was defunding Planned Parenthood in the state of Ohio because he was governor. In 2018, took an appointment from Trump as some kind of economic advisor. 2019, re-registers as an independent. And then, as you so aptly said, in three weeks before declaring he was going to run for mayor, he became a Democrat. You call yourself a proud Democrat when you just discovered the party. And when somebody asked you about it in a town hall meeting, you said, yeah, I'm a Democrat, but really I like the Democratic Party of 10 years ago. Well, okay. The party was less diverse then. <laughs> the party is diverse, more diverse now in every way in just in terms of ethnic makeup, but also politically. We have a lot of different sides, which I think just, you know, describes the Democratic Party. It's a big tent. And so I don't believe that that is a genuine thing to do. 
And I think that he his core values are Republican. I don't think he's a, a MAGA Republican, but it's important to be honest for people to trust you and for people to understand who your values are. And you can't do that if you're all over the map. Absolutely. I mean, I think that you don't get invited to a Republican primary debate and sit in the front row and get up on stage and shake Ted Cruz and Donald Trump's hand if you're not a Republican, a mega Republican or not. I'm sorry, you're not. And when we're talking about basic human rights, I mean, I understand that it's not the mayor's job to decide if we have the right to our own reproductive freedom. But the mayor of Los Angeles should certainly be representing the women of Los Angeles and the people that can get pregnant in Los Angeles. And if the candidate who's claiming to be pro-choice now really isn't, that's a real deceit. I mean, the man makes a beautiful mall, but that doesn't mean he can buy his way to mayor. And I think that that's a very important thing. And also, you can't say you've been pro-life all your life when you've been on record saying, I oppose abortion in most cases, but my wife and my daughter, and what I would never tell them what to do. That's kind of a common Republican thing, that they will protect their their wives and daughters. They just won't protect the majority of us. <laughs> yeah. We had Alexis McGill Johnson on the show from Planned Parenthood a couple mm -hmm. weeks ago, and we were talking about different ways to phrase things. And we were saying, stop explaining human rights through the women in your life. You know, stop yes. saying like, well, my daughter and my wife deserve this, but I wouldn't see it for the rest of the population. But I understand rape because my sister, you know what I mean? Like, forget exactly. that. We are people that deserve rights, whether you know us or not. Exactly. Exactly. And the truth of the matter is, is that women who are affluent will get the care they need. This is primarily targeting lower income women. And, uh, and I think that's the part that is really uh, disingenuous. So, you know, you have to tell people who you are. You can't just spend, which is what he did. He's now up to $60 million. He spent $40 million in the primary. Well, we need to be very clear. He is $60 million of his own money. Right. This isn't $60 million that was donated with small grassroots donations <laughs> like you have. This is $60 million no. he had to throw around to essentially buy an election. And that can happen if you can put boots on the ground and people knocking on doors and you're paying them $20 an hour to, to say that they should vote for you. If you are putting out attack ads, if you are putting out um, constant advertising, constant flyers, you can buy your way into politics, unfortunately, in America. And it's one of the things we need to address uh, at the federal level, at the state level, this ability to buy elections. And we just can't can't have the richest able to buy our government. We can't work like that. We have to be picking our leaders, not allowing people to buy their way into ruling. Absolutely. And just think about how many unhoused people could have housing with $60 million. You know, <laughs> it is really shameful. But I'll tell you, though, the people of Los Angeles did not buy it in the primary. And I'm hoping they won't buy it in the general. He spent $40 million, I spent four, and I beat him by seven points. And I think you can pay for walkers, but if they really don't believe in what they're walking about, now we're doing a kickoff very soon, and there'll be hundreds of people there that I don't even know because they believe and they're inspired by something, not because I paid them to come. And I think that it's a structural problem. Because I have all sorts of rules and talk about rules and regulations, the rules and regulations that if you contribute $1 to me, 
they're so onerous. All he has to do is write a check. And it's one of those flaws in our democracy. Yeah. Yeah. And you want to spend more time actually governing, leading, Uh, doing the work. Yes. Being with the people, being with the people. It's been so much fun since, since June, because now I've built a campaign that I was wishing for, which is a campaign that brings everybody together, all the parts of the city, all the different ethnic groups. We even have a youth for bass, which are high school students up to college students, some that are too young to vote, but they can certainly get on the phone. And, um, and they had their first event a couple of uh, weeks ago, and there were about 100 teenagers there. So they're all, you know, fired up, and, and we hope to bring some, you know, major young political leaders to, to speak to them and hold rallies. And, you know, it's an opportunity. I mean, I first got involved when I was 14, and I've never stopped since then. And, uh, and that's the beauty of a campaign. A campaign can be kind of like the fir- your entry into politics. And to me, politics is not just about elected office. It's community organizations. It's community issues. It's everything. Elected office is just one area. And uh, the other areas, frankly, I find to be far more joyful. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I always say that politics is the steering wheel for the direction we want the country to go. Oh, that's and so you want, well, as, you want as many people in that car as possible being like, let's do it, you know, singing along yeah. to the song. Love it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it. I think we come back to the idea that at the end of the day, you are a Democrat and yes. the Democratic the democratic umbrella has become so big, so diverse, so many people. There's so many different points of view. I always say we have a working parliamentary system underneath the democratic (laughs) umbrella at this point, because, you know, from Joe Manchin all the way down to AOC, everything in between. And it, it's all people that believe in democracy and believe that government can help people, that believe government can be a force for good in the world. And then there's the other side. And I think if Rick Caruso wants to join our umbrella, God bless him, but he's going to need a couple more years to prove he's a Democrat before we thank let him run a democratic city. So I want to thank you so much for joining me today, Karen. Ultimately, the race you're running isn't just about LA. It's about the bigger issues of our time and making sure we hire people that share our values and have the experience to make real change. Mayor of LA is not a figurehead position. It is the leader in the nation and a beta test for far bigger initiatives. So not only do I want people fired up to vote for you, to come out for you, to send money for you, to knock on doors for you, to get you elected, I want to make sure they're thinking about what kind of country they want to be living in and voting for leadership at all levels who will steer us in that direction. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This was just a delightful experience. I really I'm so enjoyed. glad. <laughs> I'm so glad. Well, I wish you great luck. And uh, you've got a lot of hands to shake, a lot of things to do, I'm sure. But <laughs> but we are so proud of you uh, running, taking your step away from Congress to run for the city that you love. Thank you very much. We'll talk again soon. So that was Congresswoman Karen Bass running for mayor of Los Angeles. She has the experience, the passion, and the plans to run LA differently, and quite frankly, better than it's ever been done before. But this isn't just about LA. It's about the broader issues our country is facing and making sure we put people in leadership positions who are who they say they are, who will care about their communities and focus on making positive change for the people who live in them. Karen Bass's entire history is of someone who has run towards problems rather than away from them, someone who's looked to solve issues rather than brush them under the rug. And her vision for LA is not just forward thinking, but it's the only one that gets us to a safer, fairer, more progressive future. If we can do it here, we can do it right across the country. I want to thank Congresswoman Bass for joining us today and you for caring enough about democracy to be here. 
Now let's go out and get that woman elected. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.